Welcome to Cards Chat, the friendliest poker podcast in town from the world's number one poker community. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Robbie Straczynski, and thanks so much for joining us once again on episode number 29 of Cards Chat, the friendliest poker podcast in town. On this episode, we have the pleasure of welcoming Matt Berkey. Matt is the founder and lead instructor of one of the most successful and innovative poker training sites in our industry, the Solve for Why Poker Training Academy. He's also hugely successful on the felt with over $4.1 million in career tournament winnings. And that's for someone who proclaimed himself dead money in the biggest tournament he ever played. And will also tell you emphatically that he's primarily a cash game player. Let's get to know him better. Matt, welcome to the Cards Chat Podcast. Thanks, Robbie. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? Good. I'm doing all right. And I'm eager to get to know you a little bit better. And I'm sure our community is too. Um, let's start out with your background. Of course, you you grew up in the poker world from a, a smaller stakes, East Coast grinder uh, from Pittsburgh, go Yinzers. So to where now, of course, you're one of the most successful and influential players out there. Um, how exactly did you get started in poker? Um, I, I guess it was initially a means for me to kind of socially fit in. Uh, so I don't drink. I've never drank. Um, but I played baseball my entire life through college. And particularly as a freshman, you get hazed pretty, pretty tough on a, on a team like that. Uh, a lot of which involves drinking. Mm. And I was very steadfast. I just wasn't going to budge. But, um, you know, kind of the way the story goes down is uh, the, the the first encounter that I had at the upperclassmen's baseball house. It was a lot of hazing the, the young guys and making them a part of the team or whatever. And I noticed in the back corner there was a card table. Uh-huh. Uh, my friends and I had played a bunch in high school. This was pre-moneymaker boom. So mm. it was mostly like stud variations. Uh, often with wild cards, follow the queen, Chicago, whatever. Um, and I kind of just like shifted the conversation that way before it was all said and done. We were playing for mill money that night. Uh, and I could always hold my own. It was one of those things where like, I didn't really try to, to win the most or anything like that. I just wanted a, a means to fit in. Um, once the moneymaker boom started, it was something that I gravitated towards very quickly. At that point, I was the upperclassman. So I was the one running games in the back of the bus when we were driving to Florida and, you know, hosting tournaments at the baseball house and things like that. So it was a pretty easy, natural transition, uh, I guess, away from my baseball career into playing poker more seriously. Um, And, you know, once once it was very clear that I wasn't going to make it in the baseball world uh, at that point, I was already pretty well established. Established as a poker player, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Interesting. Um, Yeah. So I guess I graduated in 05. So I'd been playing for two years, mostly full time, I guess. I'm still going to college and playing ball, but uh, I probably had like a 15K bankroll at that point. So it was kind of just like, well, I guess this is what I'm doing now. Wow. Wow. Unbelievable. I mean, we're, you, you know, we introduced you primarily as a cash game player. Was that always the case right from the beginning? Like you said, you mentioned these home game type of variants. You don't usually find follow the queen tournaments. So has it always right. kind of been cash games? Yeah, tournaments weren't really a thing too much outside of the World Series when I first started. Uh, I can remember very specifically the first time my local room, Salamanca, uh, it it was a part of the uh, Seneca casinos. So I would go to all three of them. Um, I can still remember the very first time they hosted a tournament. It was like a 20K guarantee, but it wasn't until maybe 2006. 
So we're talking three years after the moneymaker boom and they'd been hosting cash games that entire three year span. Right. Um, most of everything else I was playing was also underground games. So they were obviously cash games. Every now and again, we would do like a hundred dollars sit and go or, or a two table freeze out or something like that. But tournaments just, they didn't have the same appeal. The, the convenience and the ability to just like get in, get out, uh, to know that the, the pot you won was actually money in your pocket kind right. of thing. It just appealed to both recreationals and aspiring pros alike, I think. Mm -hmm. And that applies today as well, all these years later? Yes and no. Um, I think tournaments are certainly the wave of the future. Uh, they're much more complex in their simplicity, ironically enough. <laughs> um, you know, it's it's kind of like the game of Hold'em, where it, it only takes a minute to understand the rules and, and comprehend what you're about to get yourself into. But it may take a lifetime to master mm -hmm. something that's so variable in nature as MTT play. Right. Um, you just can't really solve for all the different stack sizes, all the different formations you'll run into, the the different ICM spots. You'll just forever be learning. And I think that's a great thing. For sure. Um, there's also more opportunity there. You can't be frozen out. You know, you don't need to be invited to events. Uh, but my heart definitely still lies in cash, specifically deep stack cash. So I, I would say I'm still putting the bulk of my hours for both study and play in that arena. But it's maybe like 25% of what it was five years ago, whenever I was heavily grinding. Interesting. And all those variants that you started before, like pre-Moneymaker, are you mostly a Hold'em guy or you also sort of mix it up in, in stud games and PLO and, you know, do seven triple draw once in a while? No, I'm, I'm definitely a purist. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I think this game's hard enough to figure out and I can't fathom trying to branch off into another seven or eight variants. That said, I do think that there is uh, a desire to comprehend other games. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of things we see in the near future that shake up the no limit cash arena, whether it's adding a Nancy, adding a third blind, um, you know, in Texas, they do double board bomb pots, yes. which is fantastic. Uh, they're amazing. Like you just can't solve for nine ranges that are 100% seeing the flop, uh, and then split board game, you know? Mm -hmm. So it, it gets me back to my roots a little bit where you're doing some brain solving in real time and you're trying to just outmaneuver, outwit, and also get on the same level as your opponent. Like sure. a lot of the way that we profited throughout the years was just being able to think in the same capacity as the person you were up against, right? Right. So it didn't really matter too much like what you knew. It mattered what you knew that they knew kind of thing. And you hate to go into that meta, I knew, he knew, she knew, whatever kind of thing, <laughs> but there's a lot to it. I mean, it's it's an intuitive game and it's a psychological game whenever you're playing in the in the live realm face-to-face -face with other people. And I certainly think that's what, you know, that's the spice of the game. You know, that's what makes it interesting. And that's what keeps even those who aren't necessarily winning coming back to the tables because I might win next time. At least that's how I feel. Um, <laughs> obviously, so you talked about, you know, your East Coast grinding back in the Seneca casinos. You're based in Las Vegas now. Um, when did you move there? And at what point did sort of that specific catalyst come that say, OK, got to move to Vegas? Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't me. I, I got oh. dragged here kicking and screaming. Um, uh, my heart's in Pittsburgh. I love it there. I never imagined leaving. Hmm. Uh, and Vegas just like represented everything that I wasn't. It was, uh, you know, deceitful and sinful and, and this wild, illustrious place where people go to escape the real world. And that just wasn't me. Um, I wasn't doing super well, I guess. Uh, so by 2006, 
by the end of 2006, I had built up like a $60,000, $70,000 bankroll um, that I lit on fire Ooh. in like one night, uh, just shot taking twenty five fifty. Um, PLO nonetheless, which I didn't know what I was doing, of course. <laughs> uh, so I lost like, I think I lost like 30 or 40,000 in one night. Um, and I was still kind of chasing the baseball dream. So I had signed up for a, uh, it's like a winter league in Yuma, Arizona. Okay. That was in January, 2007. I went there almost dead broke somehow, some way. Uh, there was a casino on the California Arizona state line called Paradise Casino. Okay. They had just begun running No Limit 2007. <laughs> They're mostly a spread limit uh, place because of Arizona laws. Right. So they ran their very first tournament ever. It was a $500 buy in, $500 add on. Um, and it got like 100 entries, but they guaranteed 20K to first. Oh, wow. So, nice. Yeah. So it was like so, not everybody added on. It was probably somewhere in the neighborhood of like, 50 to 60,000 in the prize pool. And first place was almost half. That's pretty top uh, heavy, yeah. I just went wire to wire. I, I think nice. I should bled from the second I bought in until it was over. It happened to fall on my birthday, which was the only weekend that we had off the entire two months that I was there. It was, it was such a wild coincidence uh, and sequence of events. But so I got through that year and I did okay. I recovered some. I probably had like maybe 20,000 by the end of the year, 25,000, something like that. And my friends, all around me, there was just like, look, we've outgrown these Pittsburgh home games. They're getting smaller. They're dying. We all need to go to Vegas. And I'm like, no. And they're like, hmm. okay, so we're going to Vegas and you're coming with us. And I'm like, absolutely not. And they just basically flew out here, uh, put down a down payment on a house and we're like, either come or choose another career. Wow. So I came. Uh, I, I came and, you know, everything just like went well. I think I, by the time I paid for moving costs and stuff like that, I maybe showed up with like 10K in my pocket. Uh, and I got second in a Venetian event like the first week I was here. Um, and Brent Hanks moved out here with us. He he came late just because it's what he does. He just drags his feet with everything. So he showed up on like a Saturday and won the Sunday million the next day. <laughs> it was insane. Wow. It's like, it's like he's one of your uh, your boys from back home. Like, yeah, he's a Buffalo yeah. guy. Yeah, yeah. He, uh, he was a little bit closer than we were to Salamanca Casino. So uh, we met him, you know, probably played with him for like two and a half years before we all decided to come out here. Very cool. Nice. Well, I mean, so Las Vegas, obviously to people who don't live there, maybe people who visit, you know, once in a while, certainly has that sort of stereotypical glow or whatever you want to call it, the way you described it before. You've been there now for what, well over a decade, you know, close yep. to like 14, 15 years, something like that. Um, is it still that way to you? Because I know locals look at the city quite differently. It's it's divided. Um, the social climate is very difficult to navigate, hmm. uh, particularly if you're not like interested in going all in on the nightlife, um, especially as I age out of that, right? Like I'm 39 now. I'm just not looking to go to Omnia on a Wednesday. <laughs> you and me both. Um, yeah. So I'm like, also 39, by the way. <laughs> It's tough. It's tough. Um, you, you're not going to meet too many normal people in the traditional sense. Like you're not going to meet a lot of uh, teachers and nurses and scientists and you know people who are in traditional crew. And that's great. I, I think it's, I think it's really good to be able to come in contact with like all walks of life. 
But the problem is, as a poker player specifically, you're mostly just going to meet service workers or people in the service industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always say that that's a problem just because it kind of enables laziness uh, from the social side of things. Like, right, it's just so convenient. They're, they're going to work a comparable schedule. Uh, you're just going to naturally always gravitate there, but you're not really going to push too many boundaries. So right. I think that it could be a little bit challenging from that regard. Um, but the city itself has a lot to offer, uh, way more than you would think uh, just kind of being from the outside looking in. Once you get away from the strip and the glitz and the glamour, there's just like a lot within pretty close proximity, be it Mount Charleston, which is an hour away, uh, Red Rock, which is very close, obviously Lake Mead, which is fantastic. There's just like a lot of outdoor activities. And I think the best place or the best part about this place and why I'm probably here and why I build a house here rather than moving back home outside of needing to be here to play is just you stay young so much longer, Hmm. right? Like you just can't be 39 single and playing poker for a living in Pittsburgh, PA. (laughs) That's just not not remotely normal, but like you're just another person in a sea of other people who are like kind of transient in the city doing your thing Hmm. out here. Um, And, you know, the, the ability, like I'm probably in like six or seven different rec leagues and oftentimes the games are at like 10 p.m right but right. that's like just a non-thing like nobody cares nobody even thinks twice about the fact that like we're playing a 10 p.m softball game on a tuesday <laughs> and sure. you know there are two te- two teams with 20 people on each uh wow. it's just it's nice it's nice to have like that hustle and bustle and like don't quit kind of uh atmosphere Mm -hmm. it's like i fly into to home on a tuesday and like i can't get dinner at 9 30. yep yep i know it's it's very very different yeah for sure i remember also there was one uh session uh i was playing when i was there in in, you know june like world series time and people i was staying by i was like would you mind getting milk on the way home i was thinking to myself well i hope something's open i was like wait a minute of course something's open there's always something open it's not a big deal i'll get milk at 5 a.m no biggie yeah Yeah, it's good stuff Um, it's always so intriguing to me to hear the the locals' perspective, and more from like a, a poker standpoint. You know, you live there all year round. Is there like a, a specific time of year where the games tend to be better, or specific rooms where the games tend to be better? And part two of that is when they're not as good. If they're not as good, is that when you do your travel and just sort of wait for the the good juicy times? Yeah, I mean, uh, to be to be quite honest, I'm a little bit checked out about what the the environment looks like now Hmm. um not to sound like i'm on some sort of pedestal but i'm just so selective about what i'm playing and mostly it's just invite only uh so i'm almost always getting a call whenever i'm going to play yeah poker after dark's on the phone right yeah yeah i mean kind of but it's just like you know 50 100 plus doesn't really run very consistently and when it does the pool of players that are willing to play it is very small Mm -hmm. so uh it's kind of one of those things where i get the cherry pick uh, that said, Super Bowl will always be Vegas's Christmas, right? Like it's just the the most important time of year for a gambler. March Madness probably being a close second, mm-hmm. um, and maybe you could even argue that March Madness is bigger just because it's a longer time frame, right? Um, but like, yeah, those are the two biggest times of year. January is always very good because of conventions, uh, or at least in the past. Right now, obviously, it's not exactly yeah. the case. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's one of those things where um, we're not the mecca anymore, 
where people from all over the United States, sometimes all over the world, come here to play poker. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the scene has gotten a lot tougher. The regs are better. Uh, they, I, I think the regs here have always been tighter compared to like uh, the really densely populated coastal cities. Sure. Like, uh, you know, I'm using New York as an example, even though they don't have poker, but like you go to, when you used to go to the Brigada back in the mid to late 2000s, mm -hmm. uh, those games were wild. Florida was wild for quite some time. LA is always considered to be wild. Uh, Vegas is kind of the place where everybody lands that's trying to make it. Hmm. You know, the cost of living is relatively low. Yeah. Uh, the, the availability to games is relatively high. But the problem is you have to get better. You have to be very battle-tested. Um, you know, people aren't just going to give away their money here necessarily. Mm -hmm. uh, and for that reason, I think that people are kind of traveling here. Like The allure to play uh, poker in Vegas has maybe gone down, especially since, like, you know, if you're just in some random city in the Midwest, there's probably a card room within an hour right. or two drive. Sure. I hear that. So I, I, most of our audience, let's just, I can't know for sure, but I was, I would assume that the 300,000 strong cards chat forum community aren't 5,100 grinders though. So I'm, so I'm wondering though, let's, if possible, somehow that mm -hmm. question that I had asked, is that still applicable though? You know, maybe it's, uh, yeah. You know, for the one, two, two, five, even five, ten kind of folks, is it still wild, loose, and it has that Vegasy feel, or is you know the same applies as well? It's 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 tough these days, and better to go to Bossier City or you know New Orleans or something. Uh, I would say the games often play smaller here, uh, mm -hmm. with the exception of maybe one, two. Mm -hmm. um, the big challenge of one, two is that the the rake is so astronomically high. Yeah, and. I'm not even saying in Vegas. Vegas rank is actually pretty good compared to most other places, I think. But the issue is, is that like $5 is uh, two and a half big blinds per raked hand, right? And you're going to hit the cap pretty often. Yeah. So you might be talking about them taking somewhere in the neighborhood between 75 and 100 big blinds an hour. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's pretty difficult to overcome that. Um, now, what helps is that there's such a massive influx of dead money playing at those stakes. Uh, but it's hard to make a living play one, two, because the more hours you put in, the more of that rake you pay. It's right. different if you're there trying to pick up loose cash, right? You'll do very well. If you're putting in a handful of one, two sessions where the games are good, uh, you can have an extremely high win rate. Um, and you should, and you should use that as a crutch to get to the next level where the rake is less, less impactful. Mm -hmm. um, but once you do start to get to those slightly lower rate games, I think that the the gameplay kind of tightens up a little bit. Now that said, at the two five level, you have infinite games to choose from. You know, when when they're at full capacity, Venetian might be running like I don't know seven, eight, ten two five games maybe. Wow. Um, the win offers a deeper two five game. They'll get three or four going any given night, and, uh, and these are uncapped. Of, so uh, win is three hundred big blinds. Mm -hmm. um, Venetian's two hundred. Bellagio's one hundred. And then there's a bunch of like smaller rooms across the city that vary. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. That's good to know the the scene. I know a lot of us are going to be, uh, you know, itching to come back and play a little bit. So it's good to get the, that sort of an insight. Um, you know, obviously we've alluded to it. It is the the elephant in the room. Live poker wasn't really possible too much in 2020. Um, so what was that like for you for the past year? I, mean, I know that you had some results in the, the WSFP.com summer series. Uh, you know, it's like 60K and winning. So, 
you know, was it just online or were you focused on other stuff? Um, yeah, I mostly just played online, uh, almost exclusively on WSOP. Uh, I actually had a really great year. Um, mm -hmm. I played a lot of nosebleed cash. Uh, so I probably put in, I don't know, maybe 5,000, 10,000 hands uh, mm -hmm. at the 50, 100 and higher level. Nice. Um, and then maybe a comparable amount at like 2550. Uh, did very well. Uh, did well in the tournaments, uh, as you kind of mentioned. Um, and then I got to play a handful of of like private cash games too. Mm -hmm. I maybe played 20 sessions last year, um, which isn't uh, honestly that isn't that far off my normal volume. Like wow. when I'm getting really but, in an entire year. Well, I mean, you have to remember like when I'm playing these 200, 400, 300, 600 games. Um, they may only run 150 times a year and mm -hmm. I'm certainly not getting first seat choice. Uh -huh. Right. So right. I, if, if it's a seven handed game, I'm eighth on the list almost always. Mm. So maybe I get to play 25, 30% of the games. So my normal yearly amounts in those games is maybe like between 30 and a good year would be like 50 sessions. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, you just have to make the most of it. It's a huge opportunity and you just do what you can and then fill the rest of the uh, desire to play with like some higher stake tournaments. So interesting to hear that. I think you got to start sending uh, flowers and candy to the uh, the guys who organize the game. Get yourself boosted you know, third or fourth on the list or something like that. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so it's interesting because like, again, people like me at least, you know, playing like these low stakes games, there's never a time where you don't have a seat in like, right. a one, two or a two, five. It's interesting that the game selection is, you know, limited to that degree. It's it's an interesting thing to think about. Um, well, I know you played a ton online before Black Friday. You had, uh, according to Pocket Fives, I see here almost a million dollars in tournament winnings. Generally speaking, you know, in normal times, do you also play online a lot? Is this sort of like a, a, a little bit of a fluke this last year? Like, and then now you're going to go back to playing live as things open up. Yeah, I, this is the most I've played online since 2010, 2011, mm. maybe. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's not even remotely close. I, I would say I maybe play like 10 tournaments a year on WSOP uh, just because, you know, there are bracelet events and some other sure. big things might happen here and there. But um, it's not really my forte. Uh, and I, you know, I still just have like so many concerns. Like uh, I love online poker for what it is. Mm -hmm. um, but I would struggle to make it my sole source of income. Um, hmm. There are just too many opportunities for bad actors, I think. Even and in like a regulated WSOP.com market? Less so, but I mean, you know, they're, they're still fighting the good fight too, right? Like hmm. they're only as good as their security system. And wow. uh, there's just new technology coming out every single day, be it RTA or scripts or uh screen scraping uh you know there's there's just always people out there looking to derive an edge mm. uh and that makes me uneasy because since it's not my sole source of income i'm not necessarily paying well i mean i i guess i am because i feel a, a responsibility to it right like i have a pretty good understanding of like what games to sit in what games not to because they may be unscrupulous wow. uh, and yeah this is less of an issue on wsop of course than it would be on unregulated sites mm -hmm. um but, you know, there, there are certain things that just can't be policed, like collusion sure. rings and, and that I don't really, I'm not super concerned with. I, um, 
I, I think it's happening at a very tiny frequency. App games would concern me a lot more about that. To be I quite understand honest. for sure. It's definitely a you know caveat emptor when you get into the app stuff and the, the unregulated sites. Uh, RTA, just for those who don't know, uh, real time assistance. Don't want to go into it because I don't want to encourage it. But it's important to know what the acronyms mean. Um, yeah. Matt, you played uh, at the WPT at the Venetian recently, and you wrote an interesting tweet. Um, I completely forgot how utterly face up live poker is. So what's it like? What's it been like to sort of return to the action in the poker rooms? And what exactly did you mean when you wrote that? I think that like the last year, year and a half, I've been putting myself under such a such a, a strong microscope where um, you know, you're trying to be bulletproof when you're in these online environments as best you can especially when you're playing higher stakes, you want to be able to compete. So not only was I playing in an environment that I'm not overly comfortable with, which is online, not only am I playing like, you know, multiple tables now and maybe five to 10 X the hands that I was playing before, but I also lose the live factor that I think I'm pretty good at of just being able to discern where my opponents like fall in their capabilities. Um, so you have to make up for all that by sharpening your skills and you have to get a lot stronger in theory and you just have to be a lot more diligent and patient and start folding hands that feel like calls and calling hands that feel like folds and you know doing a lot of the 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 difficult work to make yourself top tier mm -hmm. going back to live it, it was like going from you know a high level sport to gym class <laughs> uh, and I mean that as somebody who loves live poker to death, but it's like, you know, there are days where I wake up and I'm not even sure that I am good enough to be a professional poker player anymore. And then I go and sit at this 5k at the Venetian and I'm just like, Oh my God, I'm like the best player in this room by 10 X. Wow. And it's just like, you know, that that's not true, but that's the feeling that you have. Because sure. You just see so much wild stuff going on. Mm -hmm. uh, and neither things are true, right? It's like the, the former is a byproduct of like just seeing so much, weird stuff happened that over the slow course of time in live you just don't see in succession you know mm -hmm. like people don't understand like time freezes when you're playing live the, yes. the the low amount of volume of hands that you're getting out you just don't see anything hmm. you have no real snapshot of of what um the variance graph looks like but like when you fast forward that into into online where you're getting like a significant volume of hands you just start to see things, patterns. And, and that's the thing, coming from the live realm, we're always looking for patterns, right? Right. So whenever you're playing online and suddenly you just start to see like, uh, you've been one outed five times in the last week. It's like, well, that's an anomaly. That just should never happen, especially over the course of like 5,000 hands. But if you're able to actually zoom in over the scope of like a million hands, there's gonna be a bunch of 5K intervals where a one outer occurs at this frequency. Right. So it, it becomes very challenging to kind of like find that rational, logical mindset and rest there all the time. And rather than like just giving into the, the observation of the environment. And I think like when I wrote that tweet, I was just kind of like going from one observation to the other, right? Uh -huh. Where it was just like, God, I feel like I'm under so much pressure to always perform and do so well in this online environment. And then suddenly it's just like you take a deep sigh and you're just like, Man, how am I going to lose? I just don't know. <laughs> it's going to take a cooler for sure. Wow. Uh, if you don't mind my asking, I didn't uh, pay that much close of attention. Did, how'd you finish in the tournament? Did you make the money there? 
No, I, I busted first orbit day two, uh, just simple flip, 10 to the king. And then you just sat there for 12 hours in cash games, making it back, printing? Nah. Okay. Home, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I'd be remiss uh, if I didn't ask you about your largest ever tournament live score. And of course, everything that, that went along with that. We're talking about your fifth place finish in the 2016 $300,000 buy-in super high roller. You won $1.1 million dollars. Uh, not only did you have a career-defining result uh, in that tournament, but of course it was documented in the GPI award-winning series, Dead Money, which you can see right now on Poker Go, of course, after you listen to this podcast, guys. Um, since that time, and over the last five years, you've been much more involved in poker training uh, and in content creation with Solve for Why. So how do you look back now on that experience, more as a, a poker player or as a content creator for that for that documentary that you helped make? Uh, yeah, it's funny because it seems like it wasn't that long ago, but five years is quite <laughs> a long time. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I mean, the decision to start Solve for Why was partially born out of only getting to play 30 sessions a year and right. deciding my hourly as an entrepreneur is just higher than my hourly at 1020. Hmm. Um, but secondarily, it's it's kind of rooted in the fact that I just have a great interest in making impact in some way, shape, or form. Um, and I know poker well. So this is a good testing ground, I guess, to see if I actually can be influential and impactful. Um, it's a small community. It's a, it's subject matter that I know very well. So the idea was like, let's start to build out this company that solves for root cause analysis and see if we can move the needle at all in this small community. Hmm. Uh, and dead money was just kind of like a microcosm of that. Mm -hmm. It was like, well, I'm going to put myself through the methodologies, right? Because I don't play high rollers and uh, I, I don't play buy-ins this large or fields this small and they take a unique skill set. So let's kind of go through our process. Let's document it. And let's hope that the results align with the hard work that we put in. And fortunately enough, like we were on the right side of it. Right. Wow. It's like, I love the way you put it. It's like, it's obviously you're not reading off a piece of paper that answer, but it's just so well put, so well thought out. Um, that's interesting because it's obviously a little bit of both, both as the poker player and having gone through the, you know, the, the methodology, like you said, and creating content from it that obviously led to, to bigger and better things. Um, what would you say, has been your proudest moment as a player and then as a content creator? Would it be that dead money or something else in your career? Um, in the moment, it was definitely the the fifth place finish at the Super High Roller Bowl, just because uh, it wasn't it wasn't just kind of clickbait, us calling it dead money. Like mm -hmm. uh, I very strongly felt like an underdog going into that event. Um, Looking back now in hindsight, I think more. I think I'm more proud of the fact that I've been sustained at high stakes, no limit for seven plus years now, um, and largely self-sustained. Uh, I think that that's pretty defining to me and where I really hang my hat. Um, you know, when it's all said and done, I don't want to be remembered for one random uh, event or one random score. Uh, you know, I, I honestly like it. It must be amazing to be moneymaker with the impact that he's had on the community and everything else. 
But at the same time, it has to be incredibly taxing to get yeah. out of your own shadow where the only thing you'll ever be re remembered for is starting the boom because you won the main event. Like because you were an amateur who won the main event. Like you can almost never overcome that. Um, and I, I, yeah, I would, I would prefer to put my pride, I guess, into uh, the skills that I've developed over 18 plus years and will hopefully continue to showcase uh, moving forward. Uh, I, I think that like, largely speaking, it's not a moment, it's more so uh, a resume. For sure. Well, one other thing that Chris Moneymaker is, of course, remembered for is his appearance here on the Cards Chat podcast. I don't remember exactly which episode. I think it was 15 or 16. But, you know, just a reminder to all of uh, you guys who are listening or watching, you can, we got, you know, this is episode number 29. So you got 28 other episodes to listen to. Um, so, yeah, shout out to Chris. Um, Matt, how did you come up with the name Saul for Why? Uh, so... At the time that we developed this, uh, it was it was a pretty critical point, I would say, in my adulthood. There was a lot of things going on. Both my mother and grandmother died within a couple months of each other, um, and I, I was also in the midst of the biggest downswing in my life. I was uh, just about at bottom of a five million dollar downswing. Actually, I was uh, when my mother passed. Is when I went home to take care of my grandmother, and I just stayed. So. When I went home, I was down like 5.2 million over the course of uh, a year or something like that. So it was an extended downswing. It was the largest downswing I had ever encountered. Um, and, you know, I was having a lot of negative things happen in my life as well. Um, and my default in those situations is to just do a lot of like uh, introspective thinking, I think, uh, a, a lot of self actualization. Um, and one of my preferred sources, I guess, is, or one, one that I gravitate towards was Simon Sinek, who uh, wrote mm. the book Start With Why. Uh, he wrote Leaders Eat Last and most recently Infinite Game. All I think are fantastic reads, especially if you have any interest in being an entrepreneur or in business. But um, I think they apply to life pretty well as well. And the overarching theme is just that problem solving from what and how got us through the dark ages and, you know, up until the industrial revolution and even maybe through it since it was just a very hammer and nail approach, right? Like we were, we were largely just cogs in a machine trying to advance society. And eventually we got to this technological revolution. Now there's really no need to identify problems and figure out the simple solution any longer. Uh, we need nuance and taking a Y centric point of view, really allows for that right it allows for that root cause analysis so when you want to so uh, when you want to solve homelessness you don't start giving bums on the street 20 bucks right? right that would that would be the how and what uh what what is the problem this guy is homeless how can i fix it i'm going to give him money uh that doesn't actually solve the problem right that just alleviates it temporarily but if you started a root cause analysis of why does homelessness exist well we have you know disenfranchised uh groups that are often disregarded and they're on the street, you know, we can go down this long rabbit hole, but eventually we're going to arrive at some causes that can be corrected. Right. Maybe, uh, you know, it, it, I think like solutions oftentimes aren't intuitive. Right. And we see this a lot in solver work too. Very frequently you will think that, uh, you know, you want to solve a problem. Like I'm being, I, I don't handle three bets well out of position. So I'm just going to start like folding a lot. 
And then you start to look at the solution. It's like you're just dusting off money if you're not defending it the proper frequencies, right? So now you look at what the actual response is supposed to be, and it might be counterintuitive. You might start forebetting hands that you're folding. You might start calling with hands that you uh, that you feel like should forebet for value. Uh, you know, whatever. There's a lot of things that that work, and all of that is born out of doing root cause analysis and de- deciding like why you are doing what you're doing rather than what it is that you're going to do. Execution should be the last thing, not the first thing, right? Um, so with that in mind, I, I was just trying to come up with like names that would make that message very clear. Uh, and somehow we landed on Solve for Why. I really liked our initial logo, even though it was too complex and didn't read well, but it was <laughs> the thinking man right. with uh, uh, an algebraic equation in his thought bubble that said, uh, you know, solve, like you're doing an algebraic uh, equation it said four equals y or, or four <laughs> equals whatever right basically it spelled out solve for y in an algebraic equation uh-huh. um and yeah I, I just like that idea because at the end of the day like poker really is uh representative of life in a lot of ways uh, th- there's a ton of variants involved it's driven by a very chaotic mathematical system but at the same t- token there's like a philosophy and methodology that you can apply to both the execution and the study of it. Hmm. Wow. Um, that was quiet for a long while there on purpose because you are so eloquent and you express yourself so well, Matt. It's uh, and clearly, you know, there's, it's very, very deep. Uh, the Solve for Why Academy, the name, and you know, it resonates tremendously. And you, know, you spoke about, um, you know, personal stuff that happened with you. I remember that's, I believe when I first, really kind of became aware of what you were doing. Um, you had this like incredibly long and heartfelt outpouring of a blog post that you wrote, I think connected to a lot of that stuff. Um, you know, recommend anyone, you know, to get to know Matt even better uh, than we are here, you know, during this hour. Uh, it, it, it's, it was unbelievable. I just read that just, you know, mouth agape, um, you know, and again, just got to say you express yourself really brilliantly and beautifully and uh, really enjoying this conversation. So thank you for that. Um, Thanks. Oh, it's the real deal, man. Um, what is it that you like about teaching and creating content? Um, I like that it challenges me first and foremost, I think, uh, because it forces me to at least know as much as my students. Right. Hmm. And that's harder than it sounds. Uh, you know, we have, engineers and physicists and lawyers and very well-to-do people in all sectors of the world who are very worldly in their knowledge uh so i have to keep up but also it's it's one of those things where um i also just have to keep an open mind and listen right like they there's a big value exchange there um especially when you're talking about people who are successful in other realms they are very open to what I have to say about poker. Uh, and oftentimes they will be very receptive in uh, reciprocating and you know giving me their thoughts on finance or sure. uh, technology or, or whatever. And it's nice because now I don't have to do all the legwork. Uh, right. The actual teaching element itself, I think is, it's kind of a way to keep myself in check. I think that's what I appreciate the most about it is to make sure that I'm never speaking to an echo chamber. Mm. Um, 
surrounding yourself with people who challenge the the notions that you put out there, even if they are your students, uh, I think is worth just infinite, uh, especially in a game where feedback loops are very inconsistent. You know, a positive feedback loop does not equate to uh, truth, especially in this game, right? You win a pot, yeah. that doesn't mean anything. That, right. that could just be sheer variance. And a negative feedback loop doesn't equate to truth. You lose a pot, that doesn't mean anything either, right? Um, and there's a lot of that in this community. You, you can be told that you're absolute and utter trash, but oftentimes that's based off of having watched you play a hand, right? right? Some some sort of snip snippet or snapshot of you know, uh, a million or tens of millions of decisions that you've made. And uh, when you start to lean into those feedback loops for validation, I think that you've already lost. So having the ability to instead kind of have open discourse and discern, you know, where your your holes may be. And also you're, you're doing that for your students as well, right? It's like right. you're analyzing them. You're saying, okay, uh, just based off of what you're saying, I can tell where your logical like thought process is going and it has a hole here, here, and here. Um, so I think that that's worth a lot. The content creation is something totally different. Yeah. Uh, I enjoy that for creative reasons. Uh, I kind of said this on the podcast last week or on our vlogcast last week that, you know, I, I find myself spending like five or six hours a week just creating thumbnails. <laughs> wow. That's a- like wow. I'm the CEO of a company, I should not be doing the thumbnails. But <laughs> <laughs> to a certain level, like it's cathartic for me. Like it's it's an escape. Uh, I I like creative outlets a lot, and I often mm-hmm. don't make enough time for them. Uh, you kind of mentioned my blog. Uh, I really desperately want to get back to writing again. Mm. Um, it was one of my favorite outlets. You know, at, coming into adulthood, I guess, and as I kind of solidified myself in my 30s, I maybe felt less of a need to express like that. I also just did so much more on camera stuff sure. um, that it seemed less important, but it's just very different, right? Like when you do the on camera stuff, if you're a guest for something like this, okay, it's, it's great because somebody else has deemed you worthy of the chair and uh, you know, whether it's just the host or the community that they're doing the, the show for, they want you to speak your thoughts yeah. when you're constantly doing it for yourself, for your brand, for, for, you know, essentially propping up the things that you're trying to build. It feels very selfish. It feels very, uh, self-righteous. Mm. Like, I, I don't know. I, I don't love constantly creating content for self or why, just because I do feel like, you know, we created our own platform and our own megaphone. Yeah. And, I'm not saying it feels undeserved, but it feels uh, unnecessary, I guess. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just not that all eyes on me kind of person. Um, but when you're writing, it's different, right? Because you're just putting it out there. Yeah. So if you just write something that somebody else can resonate to, great. You're just literally spilling your thoughts onto a piece of paper uh, because something was important to you and you hope that other people can can share in that. And I think I miss that aspect of content creation more than anything else. Oh, I mean, they do say a picture's worth a thousand words. So if it's a thumbnail, maybe 500 words each time <laughs> you get yeah. getting that uh, creative outlet. And I like, I love the, um, the attention to detail, you know, again, there's like put the two sides of this together, you know, folks here, you have someone who's playing, you know, 25, 50, 50, 100, 
And, you know, for the creative purposes and to get that stuff out, he's spending time as the CEO of his company, you know, five, six hours a week on thumbnails. I think that, you know, speaks to something really special. Um, so again, you know, more, more power to you. Um, time to plug it a little bit. You got a couple of tiers to the Solve for Why site. You've got your monthly membership and also the academy, which is more along the lines of like live coaching geared towards the higher stakes live cash games. Can you kind of give us a little bit of a breakdown of each and who the target audience is for each of those? Sure. Um, so yeah, there, there's a lot of moving parts taking place just because of, of COVID and the pandemic. We haven't ran an academy in over a year. Mm-hmm. Um, probably won't run another one until June or July, but okay. again, we'll see, you know, it, it just depends on how things open up. Um, but yeah, I, I would say that the target group is people who are, uh, to a point where they have a deep enough understanding of the game that they realize it's not a simple solution, right? Like the one thing that we always promote is that we're not going to give you an answer. Um, mm. but we're going to help you ask better questions. Mm. So um, I think initially when I developed the, the company, my idea was to target like the grinder who was just stuck in the mud. The guy who's been playing 2-5 for six years and can't seem to graduate to the next level. Um, and I still think that that applies. I think that that's probably the person that we absolutely help the most. But the majority of our audience is actually um, probably in a much better spot than that person I just described. They are the... Uh, the, I guess, aggressive enthusiast, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't really have a better term for it because a lot of the guys that we're, we're serving are working 40-hour weeks and playing 30 hours on top. So it's just like... That's, it's, a, it's, that's a perfect way of saying it, the aggressive enthusiast. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's just like they take it insanely seriously, sometimes more seriously than professionals do. Hmm. Um, and uh, the, the market that is so big so shockingly big hmm. it's it's people who have done well for themselves in other realms that are looking to transition out and have some sort of supplementary income um and it's very viable i, th- I think that again the way tournaments are the wave of the future i think that this is what the new pro will look like by and large wow. just somebody who has a part-time side hustle mm-hmm. alongside you know playing poker uh, it's just too unstable not to um, but yeah, we have, uh, software TV, which is the monthly membership site. Currently it's nine 99, uh, which we did for COVID relief reasons. Um, we also just couldn't keep up with creating content whenever we weren't running academies. Uh, but we are actually shifting into a two tier system next month, starting April 1st. Uh, so it'll be 50 bucks a month for the regular content, which is going to include a weekly release of Poker Out Loud um, and On Second Thought, which is kind of a review of those sessions, uh, a six-part course every month, a monthly mastermind, and an office hours where members can come and basically get like group coaching uh, twice a month. And then the free tier, we are uh, launching a curriculum of whiteboard courses. Ooh, so they're, they're maybe like three to five minutes in length, and we'll just touch on a very... I don't want to say simple topic because that's not fair, but <laughs> a, a, a specific topic, right? Like right. EV or equity or, uh, you know, something, opening ranges, something to that nature. Um, so it'll be a nice, fun, entertaining kind of three-minute insight as to uh, what you can do a little bit better to understand 
how this game works. Um, mm -hmm. And we're going to continue to populate out both tiers. So I think the whiteboard curriculum ultimately is seven courses that are five videos each. So roughly 35 courses, or sorry, 35 videos that will launch over the course of the next uh, four or five months. Um, we have a new movie coming out that we uh, partnered with PokerGo called To Be Determined. Ooh. Uh, that should that should be out in the next month or so. Um, basically, we followed around a one-two grinder for 18 months, a live one-two grinder, uh, and kind of rode the roller coaster with him. I thought it was a really good insight as to like, like basically the idea came up with, I was sharing a house with him in uh, AC when I was there for uh, WPT Brigada. And he was grinding like, I don't know, 25 cent, 50 cent online. Right. And, uh, you know, I, I'm on like day two of this 3,500 where first is almost a million and <laughs> talking hands with Christian. And, you know, this this kid like loses a flip and like throws his laptop across the room for like $7 and 16 cents. Yeah, and I'm just, I've been like, there. <laughs> it, it just kind of dawned on me. It's like he represents more of the actual poker community than I do. And his story is probably a lot more important to get out there than hmm. mine because wow. like I knew what he was going through and I know that he's suffering and I know that like, it's not exactly uh, what the dream is sold as. Not glamorous. But I think, <laughs> right. But I think it's what the majority of people who pursue this path ultimately endure yeah. and only a select few are able to graduate out of it. So uh, <laughs> pretty excited for that to come out. It'll be on our free tier um, and also on poker go. Yeah. Oh my God. Oh, everyone's sponsor, you know, go ahead and sign up and then sign up for poker. I can't wait to watch that. That's awesome. Thank you. Big reveal. I love that. Um, man, uh, you mentioned poker out loud. I do want to talk about that a little bit. Um, there's a new season out right, uh, right now. It's getting a lot of buzz. I think you're in your fifth season. Um, but people who haven't seen it, who don't know what it is, it's everyone at the table is wearing these noise canceling headphones. And while they're playing, they're describing their thought process in real time, talk about uh, educational and entertaining. Where did the idea to do something like that come from? Um, so first, Run It Once did something called like, ask, no, not Ask the Pros, uh, like All Hands Revealed or, or something like that, where they did a nine-handed online sit and go mm -hmm. with their professionals. Uh, and they just basically took, so each, each of the, the players recorded their thoughts on audio throughout the course of the entire nine-handed sit-and-go. And as they did the replay for the video, mm -hmm. um, they just interjected the audio based on whose action it was. Mm. I thought it was a really great idea. Um, and it just kind of made me realize like, oh, there's definitely a way to do this live. Right. Uh, we had just begun developing the academy with the RFID table and everything else. So I was like, I think we could do this. We just need a way for people not to hear each other. Right. And, uh, and yeah, it was like, we kicked around some ideas, came up with noise canceling headphones mm -hmm. where everybody would be playing music. Um, and we just did a, a test run and it was great. Uh, I later found out that Daniel actually did this for poker VT like oh, way back. I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah. I didn't, he, he always deserves the original credit. Cause I think he did it maybe seven or eight years prior to us. Wow. Um, but I don't, it, the thing is, is what I'll always say is it may not have been our original idea, but like nobody's going to compare it to our production value. Of course. Sure. Like I saw a couple of those old poker VT ones and it was just kind of like, meh. 
Um, well, it was good know, for Franny's, its time, right? Yeah, well, <laughs> sort of. Like, uh, forget the production quality aside. It was like, you know, a bunch of guys that we wouldn't consider to be very high-level pros just kind of saying, like, I hate his face, I raise. Uh, <laughs> so there wasn't a whole lot of education to be derived from from any of the episodes okay that's fair that's fair uh, but, but it makes sense you know it was pre it was pre-solvers it was really pre-strategy in a lot of ways everybody was just feeling their way through the dark um so yeah like shout out to negrano for the original idea uh assuming that it was actually his uh or whoever on his team came up with it but um it's our baby i i think that like it's so engaging on so many different levels uh you know people often mistake that we're trying to sell our strategy, right? Like, oh, watch us play and then go emulate us. Like, that's not the point at all, right? It's it's more so like, have you ever been confused and wish you could hear what somebody was thinking? Like, do you ever watch high stakes poker and somebody makes a play and you just don't understand why? So you criticize, right? Or you just chalk it up to like, he's the best. He's doing something I don't know how to do. Move on. Well, imagine if like you just had their thoughts taking place in real time hmm. uh, while you're watching that event occur. And I think that like being able to watch it through that extra lens is really where all the education comes from. Not because you get to know what's good and what's bad, but more so because now you get to understand where people are flawed, right? Because mm. everything is going to be bad on some level. We're not right. machines. We're not implementing perfect GTO ever. Of course. So every single play that's ever made has a mistake behind it. And that offers up some level of exploit. So when you hear how they arrived at that mistake or how they, let's not even call it a mistake. Let's just call it a decision. When you get to hear how people are thinking, what their framework is, now you can begin to put them in categories. You can uh, kind of stereotype certain people and say like, these types of people think this way. And if he's thinking this way, then I'm on the same level. And, you know, you can outflank them. And that's really all this game is about is strategy, counter strategy. I would imagine that, you know, you know, for the select group of people who are playing in that session, being able to watch that back, you know, they probably get the absolute most benefit even more than, than your students. I hope so. Um, uh, honestly, I, I don't really know, I guess, because the only people who've done it uh, multiple times are me, Christian and Lucky Chewy. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess I should ask Chewie, like, if he's <laughs> had that benefit. I know for me personally, like, I never feel more engaged than when I do those sessions. Right. You know, it's like, you, you don't just get to ever click a button. You have to be able to rationalize it. And that's not saying that rationalizations are uh, the key to success, because they're not. Generally speaking, we want to avoid them. But you, you at least need to be able to rationalize uh, to come up with a logical thought, right? Sure. Like. If if you're unable to defend to yourself why you're about to do what you're about to do, then it <laughs> almost certainly has no merit. Wow. And that's something I have to say that certainly speaks to me as a low stakes, I won't say grinder, but a low stakes player. Um, you know, so often in my home games, you know, you just like you trust your gut or you have a feeling, but my goodness, you know, I, I, that happens, you know, professionally speaking, if I'm writing something or producing something, why did I want to ask this guy this question? So I do that all the time, but when I'm just playing the game for fun, no. However, if you're dedicated to learning this game, then you, like you said, you definitely have to be in that sort of a mind frame 
Um, and it seems like a, a really helpful tool uh, for someone who doesn't want to go ahead and improve. Um, I do want to ask you a couple last questions before we get into the uh, questions submitted by the community here. Um, something recent, a new development. Uh, you joined a new venture by Faded Spade founder Tom Wheaton. It's called Above the Felt. So tell us a little bit about that and how you're involved. Uh, yeah, so Tom's just been a pretty good friend ever since he came into the industry. I think we align in a lot of our visions. Um, he has a corporate marketing background, so he's strong where I'm very weak, which is a nice compliment. Um, and uh, he kind of pitched me on the idea of doing Above the Felt Entertainment where you know, he was going to develop this company that basically started to build characters in the poker community, represent them, and... Uh, eventually try to branch out more so into um, corporate opportunities. And I think it's a good idea. I think that like, it's the one thing our community lacks. We don't really have anybody who is uh, uh, organized in the player's corner. Let's put it that way. Mm. Um, so for me, it was like a pretty easy yes. It's, it's also like doing all the stuff that I don't want to do myself, right? Like <laughs> I've, I've done corporate speaking engagements i've done uh meetup games i've done appearances and all this other stuff and that's fine i have no problems doing it i have no problems uh having the opportunities presented to me usually people are reaching out to me right uh what i do struggle with is negotiating the terms mm. like it is very hard to put a dollar amount on an event or your hourly or whatever the case may be and oftentimes i just i, I guess i feel like i have a little bit of imposter syndrome where it's always a question of like, well, why are you choosing me anyway? You know, that kind of thing. Like, I'm not a polished public speaker. I'm not the biggest profile in poker. Whatever whatever reason I drum up for myself of why I'm undeserving for the opportunity. And that oftentimes will go into the pricing, right? So it's just like, if I don't feel like uh, all that deserving of the opportunity, then I'm going to underprice myself. So that all gets taken away from me and I don't have to worry about it. Tom just right. handles it all. And I think that's fantastic. Um, but I think the bigger vision is more so just poker is a really difficult career path to navigate. And those select few who make it are insanely valuable to other aspects of, you know, the real world, whether it's corporate America or uh, philanthropy or, you know, any of the, the other outlets that people can do good. Um, I think that we have very unique, highly sharpened skill sets that can be very applicable and helpful to people in those communities. So I think Tom's bigger vision of getting eloquent, uh, intelligent people in front of powerful people is worth a whole lot. And I think we see that example with what Annie Duke has been able to do. She doesn't yeah. even have good standing in our community. And she's turned herself into a seven-figure year public speaker. Mm -hmm. So it's just like for somebody who has poor standing in the community they came from to be that influential in other arenas really should drive home to everybody from the outside looking in that we're missing the boat. We're, mm. we're just missing a massive opportunity to leverage our skill sets. It's a hell of an example. Certainly a, a shout out to Tom. Love to love him. He's uh, wonderful. Anyone who doesn't know him, Tom Wheaton, Faded Spain, and of course, uh, Above the Felt Entertainment. And I got to say, Matt, your eloquence is only matched by your humility. 
Um, no, really, this very, very impressive guy. Um, credit to my man, Mike Patrick, my buddy, for finding this little interesting nugget about you on Wikipedia. A practice he no longer continues, Berkey. It's false. Through- <laughs> I, you know what I'm going to say already? Yeah, something about mangoes, man. I don't know who wrote this, and I don't know how to have it edited. I don't even eat fruit. I literally hate fruit. I don't like fruit at all. I've never eaten a mango in my life. I just don't know why. This is in my Wikipedia, and I don't know how to edit it. Anybody out there who's sharp on Wikipedia, please take this sentence out of mine. I will try to have a crack at it. For, for, you know, for the last time, perhaps, until it disappears, I will just say this sentence. Um, Berkeley threw is ate half a mango once every morning and once before bed every day. So that's the that's one. There is another one though. Uh, salsa, okay. same exact place. In his youth, Berkey earned the nickname Eeyore, the donkey that's from true. Winnie the Pooh. Is that true? Yeah, that was true. In high school, uh, my close friends always called me Eeyore because I was just very emotionally polarizing. Like huh. everything had an impact on me. If if if, if it rained and I had a rain, uh, my game got rained out that day, I was just like crushed. Oh, yeah. So I was Eeyore. I, I was just like always wandering around looking like I lost my tail, like counting the cracks <laughs> in the sidewalk. Goodness. All right. Well, that's an interesting story. All right. Well, we have reached the segment of the show where we turn to you guys, our Cards Chat community, to see what questions you wanted to ask our guests. Of course, we have a dedicated thread on the Cards Chat forums for this. So uh, as we announced who our future guests, future guests will be, please be sure to send in your questions. So shout out to Shell's. Uh, who's always very active and sends us some great questions. Matt, who or what inspired you to play poker professionally? Um, I think I think that rounders obviously had an impact, but uh, the person who probably deserves the most credit would be my good friend Brian Lamana. He moved out here with me uh, whenever we decided to make the leap. He was one of the ones pulling me while I was dragging my feet. Uh-huh. Um, he just had confidence before I did, right? Like he dropped out of college to do it. He he made the decision that uh, he was good enough to do this. Um, and he, he was just like, I don't know, like he had some sort of like nondescript belief in me as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was one of those things because like, you know, it was a very volatile career path and I came from volatility and chaos with my upbringing. So I think initially when I was younger, uh, I sought out that I, I sought out the desire to find stability. Um, but then I realized I didn't want to be a computer programmer and oh, stability right. seemed like it was pretty tragic, right? Mm-hmm. Like I'm chasing being a professional athlete. I'm chasing, uh, you know, I'm getting handed all this free money basically to play a game. Like forget tradition, forget stability. Like this seems like a much better path. And uh, he was just always a really strong support system as was Brent. Um, because, you know, like it's, it's no, it's no shock. I went broke many times uh, throughout the course of this. Like I never played one to two in my life. I very rarely played uh, even two five. I, I probably played maybe only 25% of my early career was at like the two five 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 level. Hmm. Uh, so I was just like always sitting case money. Wow. Um, so it was really important to me to have that strong group of friends and Brian, Brent, uh, Brandon and Greg were the four guys I moved out here with. And they just always represented that. 
Unbelievable. Wow. Um, next question from Shells. What would you say was the best piece of advice that anyone gave you as you began your poker career? I don't know that I had much advice. Um, it was different then. We, we just didn't, like Negrani's generation didn't talk to us. Not the way that we do to, to the new up and comers, right? Like there was no information. There was no um, kind of showing us the way or lending us advice. It was just more so a bunch of young kids kicking around ideas on two plus two forums and things of that nature, hmm. trying to figure out what the hell it was we were going to do the rest of our wow. life. Um, I think that by the time I started getting good advice, I was probably like 30. Um, but I would say that Bob Bright was actually pretty influential in this regard where he just was always very encouraging to leverage skill over security. Right. Um, which is kind of shocking because he's a very calculated investor who certainly never puts himself too much at risk. Um, but the whole idea of like, do things while you're young, because it's more difficult for you to fail. Like you'll just bounce. Right. Um, was, was very, uh, loudly spoken to me, I would say. Hmm. Interesting. It's funny also that you mentioned, um, you know, Negrano's generation, you said you're 39. Negrano, I think is 44, you know, it's like, but still, it's a there is a generational difference there as far as yeah. when someone comes up. It's unbelievable to, to think. Yeah, that, I mean, but. he had he had probably played for seven or eight years free moneymaker, right. right? So that's that's a career. Yeah, absolutely. Um, last question from Shells before we move on to the next one. Uh, what are your hobbies, or what would you like to try away from poker that you haven't yet? Um. The vast majority of my time is spent being athletic or active, I guess. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm probably playing a sport every day, be it pickleball, softball, something in between. Um, I work out every day as well. I would say that those are the things I'm most passionate about. Uh, what would I like to do that I'm not currently doing? Uh, I, I hate to even say this out loud. I don't want to speak it into existence because I don't know that I really want to do it, but it's mm. something that I've been encouraged to do. And I probably should just, I think I might enjoy it if I actually dug into the process, but I, I think I would like to write a book. Oh. Um, and I really don't see, even when I say it, I don't mean it. I don't <laughs> want to write a book. Okay. No part of me wants to write a book, but, uh, I would like you to want to say that you wrote a book. Yeah, I would like to be a published author. There you uh, go. Okay, that, that's fair. So uh, I think I can handle writing blogs and perhaps maybe I could just turn like a series of blog posts into a book. That I would be okay with. Yeah, okay, that's fair. Uh, Acid Burn FX, thank you for the following questions. Uh, Matt, who performs the most random acts of kindness out of everyone you know? Yeah, that's love, a great love question. Love these questions, love these questions so, from the community. A really great question. It's actually something I cherish. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I truly, truly appreciate people that are just genuinely kind. Mm -hmm. um, I would say my best friend, uh, Danielle Brilli, is probably one of the more thoughtful people that I know. Um, you know, she's just like the type that will very quietly volunteer or will, you know, kind of pick up on social cues and make somebody's day bringing them a small gesture or whatever the case may be. Uh, I, I think that those 
types of acts of kindness go so much further than any other, I guess, like means to an end. Mm-hmm. Um, it kind of goes all the way back to the the idea of like root cause analysis, like slapping band-aids on things just don't work. Um, but actually genuinely connecting with other people, I think just has uh, a pretty impactful forward momentum type of, of reaction that, you know, just, it generates more change. Um, sort of, I don't know if it's the antithesis of that question, but uh, being altruistic, but uh, also from Acid Burn FX, when was the last time you felt powerful? Man, I like his questions. Right? Good. <laughs> um, hmm. I don't know that that's, hmm. this, this feels a little disingenuous to say, but it honestly, you know, racking my brain, I, I don't know that it is. I, I don't know that that's a feeling I feel that often. Hmm. I mean, I, I, I think there's plenty of times where I feel empowered. Okay. But I don't think I don't think that's the same as feeling powerful. Right. 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 Okay. Like to me, the, the connotation of feeling powerful is invincibility right. or uh, lording over somebody. And the latter, I definitely make a conscious effort not to do. Mm-hmm. Um Feeling invincible, I guess. Uh, there was probably a session somewhere over the last year where I just ran like God and, you know, chalked it up to to my own prowess. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure that that's the case. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, nothing, nothing like stands out. Okay, that's fair. Uh, Rowdy Greg has this one for you. Coming from such a small town, I wonder was poker one of the few ways to make it up and out? It's a really good question. Um, it's funny. I didn't see my childhood or my limitations as a kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, they just, they didn't exist to me. And I guess like part of that is just cause I was so propped up by the people around me. Like despite all my mother's shortcomings with addiction and everything else, she was like my biggest fan and always would tell me that I'm the smartest person in the room. And you hear it enough, you start to believe it. So I, I never really saw where I was from as being a limiting factor. Um, and I definitely didn't really feel like I needed to gravitate towards an escape. I always knew I would go to college. I always knew that uh, I was going to attempt to play ball. Um, but I think that it more so felt like an escape once college was coming to an end. Mm-hmm. Because that was the finite moment where all of that got pulled out from underneath me. Right? Mm-hmm. Like being the smartest person in the room doesn't matter anymore. Like what are you going to pursue? Right. And this dream that you've been chasing for the better part of a decade is dead. So what are you going to pursue? Hmm. Um, Poker really filled those voids. You got to be intelligent. You got to outwit and outmaneuver people, but you got to be hyper competitive as well. And it pretty naturally allowed me to transition off of like utter heartbreak from just not being talented enough to make it in sports. Fantastic answer. Um, I just, I don't want these to end because you're just giving such amazing answers here. But this is our last question, Matt. Uh, Poker HP365 asks, is there a chance to achieve results in poker without math? I'm a beginner and the game is different and I'm wondering what to look for in training. It's possible, specifically in live poker, but your ceiling will be very low and your, uh, your shelf life will be very short. Um, hmm. The best way I can describe this is for anybody who's familiar with like the butterfly effect, uh, that's born off the idea of chaos theory. 
So chaos theory is basically um, something on the surface looks very simple and very uh, intuitive and in line. But underneath, when, once you dig in, it's very hectic and chaotic at uh, how it's being driven. Uh, and it can work in the inverse too, right? Like something on the surface can look incredibly chaotic, but it's actually driven by a very consistent, uh, maybe not simple, but very consistent mathematical um, device. Uh, so the example that we use at the academy is, uh, I can't remember this person's name, but he was a, uh, what's the scientific term for a weatherman? A uh, meteorologist. Meteorologist, yes. He was a meteorologist. Uh, and he was trying to come up with uh, an algorithm to predict the weather. Um, and, you know, as he did his computations, he did it out to like the 10th decimal or something like that. And he was getting results. Uh, so what he believed to be true was that he didn't need to do all this legwork and he reduced it down to like four decimal places, thinking that a small change in the beginning would yield a small change at the end. Um, uh, but that's just not how chaotic systems work, right? Mm -hmm. That small change in the beginning yielded a massive change at the end. Mm -hmm. Um, poker is very similar, right? Like we think the idea that we could just add a hand to our opening range or, re or remove a hand or whatever the case may be. And it will only have a nominal impact on our later streets. But that's not true because of the chaotic nature of poker, right? It's driven by chaos theory. So a small change at the beginning can oftentimes yield uh, an astronomical change at the end. Now, it doesn't have to. The whole reason I'm, I'm speaking all of this mm -hmm. is to make it abundantly clear that the way that we can understand how big or small the change will be based on how much we deviate from quote unquote theory, uh, it, it's all born out of understanding the underlying math, right? So it becomes very critical to know how equities work. It becomes very critical to understand how EV is derived. And it becomes very critical to realize like where that exchange takes place over the course of mistakes, right? So if a pot is one and uh, the, the equity share is divided 55-45, well, you're entitled to 55 cents, your opponent's entitled to 45 cents. But maybe because you're in position with the stronger range, you actually get to over-realize, right? right? So now your EV might be, say, 65 cents. Uh, and now if your opponent's making errors <clears throat> on top of that, you may be able to earn more EV. Um, so all of this becomes very critical, and it sounds very complex, but... You just lack the context is all, right? When when these concepts get put into the context context of real gameplay, it becomes a little bit more intuitive to learn. But the problem is in, intuition can only take you so far. If you just go play live and you play based on your gut and you play based on pattern recognition and intuition and things of that nature, you'll do okay because people are good at that. It's, it's what we're very good at. We're good at the macro. We suck at the micro though. Mm -hmm. So as you start to play better players, competition that is comparable to you at what you're doing on a macro level, but more polished on a technical level, you're going to get eaten alive. Hmm. Uh, and that's why your shelf life will just be short and your stealing will be low. Yeah, what a, what a, what a fantastic and, and perfect answer uh, to that question. And I just got to say, uh, again, I've said it a couple of times, 
damn, have I enjoyed this conversation? Really? You know, it's like, you know, you, I'll just allude to your last answer there. Okay. So on the surface, okay, Matt Berkey, I heard of him. He's a good guy. I mean, we've spoken a couple times before, but when, you know, you dig deeper beneath that, not chaos, but you've got deep, nuanced, polished, brilliant, elegant, eloquent thinking and expression. And I have certainly really enjoyed this conversation. Um, I want to thank everyone who sent in questions for Matt. Uh, a friendly reminder to our Cards Chat community, we'd love to see you submit your questions for our future podcast guests in the dedicated thread on the forums. And of course, please be sure to, live, to leave us a good review on iTunes and spread the word via your social media channels if you'd like the show. Uh, Matt, thank you very much for joining me today, joining us on the show. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners before we let you go? No, I really enjoyed it. Uh, I appreciate the thoughtful questions. Um, yeah, this was a lot of fun. Well, glad to hear it, man. Um, well, there you go. Thanks again to everyone for tuning in uh, for another episode of Cards Chat. I'm Robbie Straczynski. You can find me on Twitter at Card Player Life. I wish you all a wonderful day. Cards Chat, the friendliest poker podcast in town from the world's number one poker community.